Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com and the mobile app. You can also listen to us on most popular podcast platforms. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow. Hope everybody had an enjoyable weekend. Clearly, we're back up and running live, so you can give us a phone call today. 973-667-1960. 973-667-1960. You can also chime in on Twitter. Hashtag Giants Chat. And interact with the two of us directly at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. And you can also continue to submit your questions online. We certainly appreciate all the great questions coming in as we'll continue to address them today as well as on future programs, giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. So, Paul, last week we delved into some of the early season Giants opponents. We'll continue that following July 4th. This week we can return to some NFL news and notes. And let's start with what developed over the course of the weekend and what has been going on, which is understandable considering there have been no on-field workouts, players are trying to get back together, especially in states where they've loosened some of the restrictions to work out privately. The Niners had done that. Two players got hurt, and another player tested positive for the coronavirus. So the NFLPA issued a memo to all the players this weekend advising them not to take part in private workouts so that they can remain healthy in anticipation of hopefully training camp starting out on time. You know, it makes a lot of sense, Lance. Dr. Tom Meyer from the NFLPA was the guy who issued the uh, the word out to the rest of the membership. And if you think about it, right, I understand that in a number of states, things are going very well with the curve, but there are obviously a lot more states where it's not going so well. And I think it's just easy for some of the younger athletes to think that they're indestructible and to forget that sometimes we are still in the middle of this very serious pandemic. And so, you know, in the quest to continue to hone their craft and to go out and to try to make sure that, hey, they're going to be ready when they report to their respective teams, they're maybe getting a little bit careless. And so, you know, good for the NFLPA to get that out there because these guys have to be mindful that this is still a very fluid situation. And just as as much as we want everything to work out well and we want the season to start on, on time and everybody to be able to play, it could easily go in the wrong direction if we don't mind our P's and Q's. Well, that's because the conditions, to your point, are fluctuating across the states. Nothing is necessarily consistent across the board. And the other thing that I think is connected to what you were talking about, and I said this over the weekend on my SiriusXM programs, and it relates to college football, Paul, because if you've been monitoring college football, mm -hmm. there's also been right various reports. It's impacting different schools as the players are returning for voluntary workouts. For example, there were reports Clemson had 23 players test positive. LSU had nearly as many 30, according to Sports Illustrated. We could sit here all day. The responsibility, and this is what you were touching on, lies on the players. At the end of the day, Paul, there could be as many medical protocols in place, and every team, including the Giants, is doing their due diligence to set up the team facilities accordingly for the anticipation of the startup of training camp. But the players are going to determine what becomes of this season based on their individual approach at the facility as well as when they leave the facility. And if there is going to be a season without interruption and everything's going to go as smoothly as humanly possible based on the circumstances of this country, to me, it's in the hands of every single individual player who suits up for an NFL team. 
That's very true, Lance. Although I will tell you that Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk did post a tweet, I guess it was a couple of days ago, and I know that things are changing on a daily basis, but I do think I watched his program this morning. This particular statement still holds. He talks about how he has gone back to some of his sources within the league for an updated assessment on how things are going in light of the NFLPA recommendation that the players don't necessarily work out with each other in these independent uh, sessions. And he comes back and says here, as far as his sources are concerned, the NFL remains highly optimistic that the 2020 season will happen. Less optimism exists that fans will be present for any of the games, however. Those last two lines, a quote from the pro football uh, posting that Florio just put up within the last 48 hours. And I... I just can say this to you, Lance, from the people around the league I've talked to, and I'm not talking about anybody within the Giants organization because, quite frankly, we've been sequestered from them. But the people around the league who I have spoken with, who have some pretty good connections into New York about this whole situation, continue to believe that they're going to do everything humanly possible to make this season happen. They're determined. They know it's going to be a lot of work. They know there are going to be some detours and potholes in the road. But they believe that they can safely get this season underway. And you know what? I don't blame them for feeling that way. This this is a big deal to a lot of people. And we're not just talking about, you know, the business angle. We're talking about also the psychological angle where this country badly needs the NFL, especially considering what's happening to Major League Baseball. Well, and also the NFL has the benefit, as we've been saying for weeks, to monitor what's going on with those other sports leagues. So that, I think, is a promising development. And if the NBA and the NHL are able to follow their initial plans, which would call for maybe things to resume later in July, the NFL will at least be able to see, okay, hey, this is what worked, this is what didn't work, this is what we need to tweak. So sure, I've said this all along. Time is on the NFL side because they've had more than enough wiggle room compared to these other sports leagues which already been well underway when COVID-19 hit this country so that I think is positive as far as what you mentioned in terms of profootballtalk.com and Mike Florio and maybe less optimism that there's going to be fans at the stadiums bottom line I don't think that should be a stunning development Paul all of these other leagues that are starting up are not anticipating to have any fans present too and I've said this if the sacrifices no fans at games that to me is a small sacrifice in the big picture of things yes to get back to your point which is the economic ramifications the psychological ramifications everything else that you can incorporate into a scenario in which we did not have football no I don't think there's any question that we we will all feel better in terms of our return to normalcy if these guys are on the field. Again, I want to stress, and I don't mean to to push this line into the background, it's got to be done safely. I mean, 100%. And we all understand that. I'm not saying be, be a fool and force the issue and then put guys at risk. Nobody is saying that. I would never even think that for one second. But I do have a tremendous amount of faith in these organizations and in their medical staffs and in the the people who are trying to find treatments and and the vaccines and everything else that they're they're attempting to do that at the very least if not eliminate the risk at least curb it to a reasonable degree and i i i just have optimism and i have faith in those folks and that's one of the reasons why i do believe in the people within the league 
who do think that this season is going to get underway. And I think, to be honest with you, Lance, I don't blame some of the players like the McCourty twins who have come out and said they're very skeptical about maybe coming back to play because they feel as though there there may be a risk factor involved. I'm fine with that. If there are some players who really believe that they feel queasy about getting onto the field or getting back out to the practice facilities because of this thing, I think the NFLPA and the the players of the the league can get together and say, okay, if you guys want a medical exemption because let's say you have a family member at home who is very high risk and you believe that if by coming back and joining us that you're going to put them in jeopardy, fine. We'll put you on some type of exempted list. I don't know what you'd want to call it, the COVID list if you like. But but give those guys the opportunity that, okay, if you want to sign away your game check salary for the season, all right? If you got a roster bonus, get your roster bonus. We'll let you have your roster bonus. We'll let you even have your workout bonus if you want. But your game check salaries, we're, we're just going to put that on hold, and you can come back next season and if there won't be any kind of penalty, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll allow that to be the case, and you don't have to come to play, and you don't have to come to practice. Stay home, take care of your family. I don't have a problem with that. And I, if it's five players, if it's 50 players, if it's 75 players around the league who feel as though that's the way they want to deal with this, they should have the opportunity to do so. Well, one of the things that the NBA was discussing amongst the players union was the fact that you can opt out, which is what you're basically hitting on. Major League Baseball has also been discussing that. So the NFL could go down that road, to your point, Paul, and they can offer the union the opportunity to say, listen, if you feel you're at high risk, you have family members you're concerned, you have the opportunity to opt out, you have to notify the team in the league by this date, and then a medical exception perhaps could be granted. But the bottom line is, Paul, if it takes that approach before the season even starts, then it would be before you finalize the 53-man roster anyway. So you really wouldn't need to give a team an exemption. You only really need to give a team an exemption if something developed during the course of the season in which a player said, you know what, I don't feel comfortable anymore. I want to sit out. And those are things that can be negotiated between the union and the league. That I don't think is unheard of. Let's face it. It's uncharted territory for every single sports league. All of these leagues are going into discussions that they've never had before. And I don't think it would be unusual if they wanted to discuss some type of an exception or opt-out program if it got to the point where you had a few players on each team. The other thing connected to what we're just discussing, I was listening to ESPN's Adam Schefter this morning, and he was reporting based on conversations that he was having with players and executives. You have to understand, Paul, when you look at the makeup of a locker room or a positional group meeting, you have players at various different levels of their life. And what I mean by that is you have veterans who have well-established families and young kids and maybe married. And then you have the players that are just coming out of college that may live a very different lifestyle, Paul. So, you know, that's the other key that's going to be a balance this season. Sometimes the player that just got out of college still has those ways of wanting to socialize and may not be able to show that discipline that a veteran would who, hey, once they take care of business at the facility, they go home, they visit their family, they solely interact with their family. So there's going to have to be, I think, some deep conversations within the locker room for maybe some of these younger guys to understand what's at stake 
if you practice the same type of socializing that you did under regular and normal circumstances? Well, I, you're right. I mean, everybody has their own way of living and their own habits and, and their own responsibilities. So I don't think there's any question that you can't treat everybody with a paintbrush here. There are going to have to be considerations. In fact, you know, beyond what you just said, Lance, how about the fact that there are some members of different coaching staffs? For example, the Giants have running backs coach Burns, who, with all due respect, he's a little bit up there in age. And doesn't that automatically put him in a higher risk group? So, you know, if, for example, he decided, uh, you know, I know I just joined the organization, but I'm older and I'm not feeling really comfortable with this whole thing. You know, if, if he wanted to take a sabbatical or if he wanted to do just uh, uh, virtual learning sessions with his running backs, maybe you have to figure out a way how, how to help those guys deal with their, their jobs because everybody needs to be considered. You can't just automatically paintbrush people and say your feelings and your situation and the, the circumstances that you have to deal with in your life are irrelevant. You can't do it that way. We're all human beings. We're all people, and we all have to figure out what's best for us given what has happened. It involves the players, the coaches, the medical team, the equipment team, everybody that is going to be around the players and coaches on a consistent basis. Everybody needs to be well-disciplined, and everybody needs to think outside of themselves. I think that's the big key here moving forward. Now, you brought up the fan element. Interestingly, Mark Cuban, Dallas Mavericks owner in the NBA, he spoke with Steve Serby of the New York Post and crowd noise came up within that conversation and he was specifically talking about things that the NBA is looking to experiment with as they try to start up that Orlando bubble in late July but this could very well be something that the NFL may want to entertain in terms of having crowd noise at games in the event that there are no fans and what the NBA is looking into is and I'm using a direct quote here from Mark Cuban There will be a lot of technology we will be experimenting with to try to introduce noise and make the event more entertaining for players and TV viewers. We've been having a lot of fun with apps that allow fans to push noise. They make it home into the arena. So not only will there be competition on the court, there will be competition from fans to contribute energy as well, end quote. I'm sort of torn with this idea, Paul. First Mm -hmm. of all, I actually think it's going to be quite interesting to hear players interact and get a lens into a different part of the game that we normally don't. So I'm excited to see that in the event there's no fans. And the reason why I'm torn is when you start having competition between fans, then all of a sudden you're going to get into, well, one team is doing its due diligence to involve fans in their home games. Other teams are not. And then you're going to have a disadvantage. And that brings into play competitive balance. And I'm not for that. Well, I happen to agree with you. I'm fine if there's no artificial crowd noise pumped in. Now, what Cuban's talking about, as you said, is a way to use technology to where it will actually be real crowd reactions, somehow interjecting them into the broadcast. That's a little different than planning or playing what in the back in the 70s we used to call a laugh track. You know, yeah. I know it's a little before your time, Lance. Oh, no, but... I know exactly. People okay. are using it now because they have no audiences for live TV shows. So I know yeah, exactly so, what you're right. talking about. So you'd watch yeah. a television program at home. Let's say it was a comedy. And they would interject this laugh track to kind of subconsciously at home make you think what it is that you're supposed to be laughing at. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of that. I, I, I would not want artificial crowd noise pumped into the broadcasts. I'm, I'm dead set against that. And I feel if there's only going to be Nat Sound, I'm with you. I think it's intriguing. I would probably enjoy it. I'm fine with it. Now, what Cuban's talking about is a little different. It's not artificial. It's just a little different. So I'm going to keep an open mind, and I'm going to say if they wanted to try that for a game or two and see how it works, uh, perhaps I'd be okay with it. I'm not going to shut the door on his idea. But here's, here's what I will say, okay? And, and I really do believe that, that NFL fans are going to watch these games if they're played, and the ratings will go for the roof because we're so desperate for NFL football that I don't think most of the people who watch are going to give two cents as to whether or not there's fake or live crowd noise technologically pumped in or, or not. I, I just think that the ratings are going to skyrocket because we want NFL football so bad. It's like, do you really need to even go to the trouble to try this? Completely agree. First of all, you don't tune in to watch the crowd. You tune in to watch the game. And as long as the product on the field is going to be there, I really don't think it's going to make a difference. I understand from a TV perspective, you're looking to doll it up. They've obviously even done this with the German Soccer League, which has been well underway for the last month and a half. But NFL fans are there to see the product. You're there to root on for your team. I think we can all manage if there's not that crowd noise in the background. So I'm completely with you. 973-667-1960. That is the telephone number, 973-667-1960. Clearly, we're back up and running live, so we will be able to take your phone calls. You can continue to send in tweets as well, hashtag Giants Chat, or directly to us, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He's at Giants, W-F-A-N. A few other things that Paul and I will delve into coming up in a little bit with respect to One player on the roster could have an opportunity for his first Pro Bowl appearance and one player that is crucial to the overall makeup of the team. But right now, let's open up the phone lines. Scott is in New Mexico. He joins us on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Scott? Uh, Good afternoon, guys. How are you doing? Doing right, Scott. What's on your mind? uh, I'm very much attuned to your conversation. I missed the first minute or so, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself. But I'm very much uh, in tune with what you had said, Paul, and uh, and also what you had said, Lance, in regards to this. There are multiple sports now that are reporting COVID cases. Uh, tennis has had uh, some problems, so has golf. But in regards to the NFL, one of the questions, where I have a two-part question. One of the things that came out yesterday is that the NFL PA doctor came out and said that he doesn't want players to... Uh, have private workouts. Together. Yeah, we had mentioned that earlier. Okay. and But I, I want to ask sort of an arbitrary question. If the players are hearing that from the doctor, say you go two or three weeks into the season and you're in a city where there's a spike in COVID cases, can a player go to, say, Joe Judge and say, you know, uh, because of the scenarios you presented earlier, can I, for this particular week I don't want to play because of some of the variables that you uh, alluded to, uh, you know, maybe you have a relative uh, or someone else uh, that you're close to that you're afraid of getting the virus. Can, can a ar- player arbitrarily then go to the coach and say, for this particular week, I don't want to play? That doesn't mean I won't play for the rest of the season, but because I went to a city where there's a spike in cases, I just don't want to play this week. And I was just curious what your opinion was on something like that. 
Wow, Scott, that is a very intriguing question, and it really goes to the entire point that this thing is fluid, and we just don't know. I really believe that in a lot of ways the league and the players' union are going to have to make up a lot of rules as they go along. Now, again, the McCourty twins are talking about something where I believe, I believe, and I'm not going to read their minds, but from what I've read from them and their quotes, they're kind of talking about being queasy about coming back to play for the season. I do think that's a lot different if you ask a team to kind of give me an opt-out for the season as compared to, oh, on a week-to-week basis, I want to opt out of that road city, which is exactly what you're expressing. I do think that's a different scenario entirely, and the league would then have to address, well, this is a variation on what maybe we were talking about. How are we going to deal with it? Maybe, maybe part of, of that process falls under what they're talking about doing with the practice squads and the fact that the CBA, and we discussed this the other day on the program, Albert Breer of uh, Sports Illustrated had uncovered a clause in the last CBA that's actually about infectious diseases, whereby you have the opportunity to put guys on an exempt list because of an infectious disease and four hours before kickoff you can put that player on the exempt list and activate a practice squad guy to take his spot without using up a roster move maybe that's where this thing comes into play yeah that's the contagious disease part of the nfl agreement that's been in place since 2010 but that of course that paul's referring to and we did discuss in a detail last week is in the event a player catches the disease test positive and therefore you have to make a roster move what you're talking about scott is you're not talking about a player has the disease you're talking about a player is fearful of catching it and for that week does not want to travel now the simple answer is the nfl and the NFLPA have a collective bargaining agreement. So anything like that has to be negotiated. The NBA and the MLB, which I referred to earlier, the National Basketball Association and its union said by Wednesday of this week, the players have to notify every team whether or not they're going to opt in to play and they're going to show up in Orlando. MLB has not hammered anything out because we don't know if there's going to be a season. They were talking about something also similar. Are you going to opt in or opt out before the season starts? So I could see the NFL doing that. You're talking about random week eight game. Things are bad in Arizona. I'm just giving you a hypothetical right. city. Exactly. And a player says, you know what? I don't want to go to Arizona to play the Cardinals. Now, Correct. You have to deactivate seven guys every week to begin with, keep in mind. So technically, that player could just be listed as illness, injured, and, you know, hey, he's not going to be one of the guys that gets a uniform. You could treat him like that. There could be a way to use that as a means. But if you have seven guys, to your point, Scott, that comes up in one week that want to sit on the sideline and then you all of a sudden run into the numbers game where you don't have 46 guys ready to go, that has to be negotiated. So to me, the simple answer is these are things that the union and the league is going to have to get together and hammer out before the season starts so that they can account for the fluid situations that are going to come up. My suspicion is, Scott, that they would not have a ruling for the game-by-game situation, that they would say, look, if you'd like to opt out for the season because of fears of the virus, you could probably do that, and they'll get a list together for those guys. I suspect that the league would think that the weekly in-and-out opt-out list is not going to be something they're going to want to touch. I think it's going to be too sticky for them, 
and I, I just I just think they'd rather stay away from it and say, look, that's not the case. If you decide you really don't want to go to that city, you're just going to have to be one of those inactive guys that your coach doesn't take, and we won't make any kind of exceptions for you. That that would be okay. my guess. Okay. My, my last question, I want to take it off the air. Uh, have you gotten a consensus from the Giants themselves, from players that you've talked to, about how they feel about the current set of circumstances and what the overall tenor of the team might be? Because obviously this is a team sport, and obviously everybody has to play together. So I was just curious if you had any consensus from talking to the players how their overall demeanor was. And I'll take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks. All right, Scott. Thank you for the phone call, and thanks for weighing in. Paul, I don't know about you. I mean, certainly I've heard from coaches, mostly from coaches that are not in the league anymore in terms of their opinion of whether or not they would like to see the season start on time or be delayed. But I have not interacted with any Giants players to give any insight or comment on what Scott was talking about. Well, the only contact we've had with these guys are through the video media conferences that they've had in the last couple of months uh, since this whole thing started. Uh, hasn't been anything in really recent times other than Joe Judge's comments from the other day. So my opinion is that these things probably affect people at different times in different ways. And I don't know if it's fair for us to speak, uh, you know, on behalf of the locker room today, not knowing if the feelings that they communicated three or four weeks ago are still the same this morning. So I'm just going to kind of leave that question alone, other than to tell you that I am unaware of any Giants players who have voiced uh, an, a, uh, an objection to coming back to report to work on time. And that's about the only thing that I can say. Haven't heard anything about it. And until I do, I will assume that all the guys are prepared to come back. Well, they've been taking part in virtual meetings throughout the course of the offseason program, so they've been in communication with the coaching staff. If any player does have concerns or there's concerns across the board, I don't know for a fact, but I would say it's fair that that dialogue has been going on within closed circles between the coaching staff and the players, as well as maybe management. I will say this. I think the biggest concern, and this is league-wide, this is not just Giants-specific, is that most coaches will tell you the biggest concern is Where are the players physically once they get them back in the building? And will they have a sufficient amount of time to get them physically ready to play a game? Mm -hmm. That is what I'm hearing in terms of the overall concern about the startup of the season. So most teams are expected to report by July 28th. If that holds true, whether they play two preseason games or four, I would say that is ample time to get ready for the beginning of September. If that's cut down to a certain degree, knowing that they have no on-field work, that's when I think, Paul, you get into a little bit of a guessing game as to, okay, do you feel good about having enough time to get your team ready? Are you going to be sloppy at the beginning of the season? Is it going to take you four weeks? And that's when I think maybe some of the concerns would start to arise. Well, I think the other thing, too, maybe there are a lot of players who may have some different opinions and different viewpoints, but until they're told that they need to make a statement. In other words, when a, when a team says to them, okay, listen, we're reporting this week. Uh, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, let, it, let us know if you're not. And at that point, when it's time, and again, everything is so fluid that it's changing day by day by day by day. The fact is the Giants are not supposed to report until July 28th. Does it really make a difference what anybody thinks this afternoon when in a month, 
So many things could happen, whether things spike up, spike down, different treatments are made available, and all of a sudden, the entire landscape changes overnight. Well, and the other thing interesting about July 28th, the NBA is expected to resume the 30th. So if teams do report around that time, it is going to simultaneously go up against some of these other major leagues returning. And that'll be, once again, another true test to see, okay, does that work effectively? Are issues arising? And how does the NFL need to adjust? It's going to be, as you mentioned, fluid uncharted territory, whatever vocabulary word you want to utilize, anyone who tells you they have the answers on June 22nd clearly is not talking with a great deal of substance behind them because what happens on June 22nd could be very different than what the state of the world is like on July 28th. So I think that's pretty much the best way to leave it. Did you see the story the other day that the NBA is going to offer every one of their players who goes down to the bubble at Disney an hour ring? O-U-R-A? It is a scientifically designed ring uh, by, by a, a, a company that specifically made these rings to monitor things like your breathing, uh, your temperature, um, the kinds of vital signs. And you wear the ring, it costs between $299 and $399 for each person, depending upon which one they get. And the NBA has told all of their players, you guys can have these rings if you want to. And... Because it monitors vital signs that actually are changed during the early days of the COVID, it can, in effect, be used as a predictor of what's going on with you if you've got the virus. So the advantage to this is that they say within the first two or three days of of contracting the virus, you're going to have a change in these vital signs that the ring will be able to diagnose. It's connected to your phone app, and it will tell you, okay, guess what? Uh, looks like you've got some vital signs changing. This may be an indication you're in the first couple of days of COVID. Get your butt in there, get tested, get out of there, you know, quarantine, whatever. And this way, not only can you get that guy away from the other players quicker, which would prevent the spread, but you may also be able to get treatment to that particular player quicker, which could lessen the effects of the COVID to said player. I, I, I was fascinated when the NBA came out with this story. I guess this was on Saturday or Sunday. I forget which day it was. And I'm like, wow, we haven't heard anything from the NFL in terms of this particular ring that's been made. But the NBA is already saying they are going to allow every single one of their players to have one of these things when they come down to Disney. Well, most NFL teams are already monitoring the vital signs of their players during training camp. So I would say the NFL pretty much has that in place. And they're monitoring the temperature and the heart rate because they know if guys are overworked, they're going to have to get immediate treatment. And that's part of the safety protocols that were put in place a few seasons ago. Yeah, but Lance, you could wear this ring all the time. In other words, you know, if the guy... Yeah, even when you're not playing, you're talking about and you're walking around the bubble. Right. You're you're talking about guys on the practice field, and you're right. The scientific uh, breakthroughs that the NFL has made, they're wiring up these guys during practice every single day. And during that practice session, they know every single thing that's going on within those guys physiologically but this ring is something that you would wear all the time as as like a wedding ring kind of thing so if at breakfast let's say the guy's monitor was saying oh you got something going on here with your vital signs 
Well, that has nothing to do with the practice field. You're talking about off-practice hours that this thing may actually be able to uh, detect that something is awry physiologically. And I, to me, I probably would, would be one of the first guys in line to grab that ring if they were offering it. Well, I'm sure, once again, the NFL is looking to see what other leagues are doing. Plus, based on the Giants video that we talked about that was put up on social media a few weeks ago, at least at the Giants facility, they've already implemented a system where before you even walk in the building, they're going to take your temperature. So that's going to be held true for the players, too. So sure. if they were out for two days away from the facility, before they let you back at the facility, they're going to see whether or not your temperature is at a normal stage to allow you to come in. Now, you're talking about also, once again, maybe they go into the cafeteria or they go into another room and there's a way for them to monitor. And more monitoring, the better. I'm all for monitoring. I'm not saying that that's something they shouldn't do, but I would say I think NFL teams are already taking steps where they're making sure they're remaining on top of those vital signs. There's no doubt about it. 973-667-1960. That is the telephone number, 973-667-1960. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. As far as some Giants-related topics, interestingly, Connor Orr of Sports Illustrated put a list together where he mentioned 10 players he thinks could be in line to make their first appearance in the Pro Bowl this season. And one of the players that he mentioned was Evan Ingram. And we've talked a lot about Evan in terms of trying to stay healthy this season. Also how Jason Garrett has utilized the tight ends within his offense. Jason Witten comes to mind. Blake Jarwin, that's promising. And also, Paul, based on what he did in the early part of the season last year before, unfortunately, the injury bug struck, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say if Evan stays healthy and he continues at that same pace that he did early last season, that he absolutely has a legitimate shot to make his first Pro Bowl appearance. Well, you know, as you said, it's all about staying healthy. I mean, we believe that the Garrett playbook, as you said, from Dallas is going to feature a lot of tight end passes. And what does he do best? He catches passes. Okay, let's not kid ourselves. He's not the greatest blocker in the world. But he does catch passes. And he does a good job with them, too. And he does get downfield. So I don't think there's any question, especially when you consider we, we've discussed how many times during this offseason that offensive lines that have been reconstructed are going to have a more difficult time with pass protection. That's going to be one of the things that will lag, especially early in the year. Well, that means you're not going to necessarily be throwing the ball 25, 30 yards downfield. You're going to look for more of the quick hitters to your running backs coming out of the backfield, and you're going to look for your tight end. Those guys are going to get a ton of targets, especially earlier in the season. And if that's productive and it's working well, why would they take it out of the playbook as the season progresses? I'm with you. Now, I think the biggest challenge for Evan is whether or not the rest of the competition in the division stays healthy as well and what they do. Because keep in mind, when it comes to Pro Bowl appearances, I think what gets lost in the conversation, Paul, in my personal opinion, is you could talk all you want about the upside of the player. And Engram has upside. I don't think anybody's going to take that away from him. The injury concern is probably the bigger looming issue. But you also need to understand part of the Pro Bowl is popularity contest, and part of the Pro Bowl is if there's been a player in the conference that has just been a mainstay, good luck trying to get him kicked out via the vote. So you've got George Kittle in the NFC, and he is by far the best two-way tight end you're going to find in today's league. 
And he's not going anywhere anytime soon because he's still a relatively young player. So in order to break through, you're going to have to have Kittle fall out somewhere. Then another guy in the conference, hell, he's in the division, Paul, is Zach Ertz of the Philadelphia Eagles. He's also not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an idea, those are the two guys that made the Pro Bowl for the NFC last year. Kittle could not play because he clearly was in the Super Bowl, so Austin Hooper of the Falcons replaced him. Now, can you put Evan Ingram ahead of Austin Hooper? Yes, I don't think that's too much to ask for. But Kittle and Ertz stay healthy. Those two guys are going to be very hard to surpass. So that, to me, is just as a big part of the conversation as it is what Evan Ingram could potentially do in 2020. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with the comment at all. I mean, look, more and more tight ends are becoming more and more productive in the passing game because of the way the league has changed. Now, having said that, though, okay, if you look at Evan Ingram's uh, stats during the course of the games that he has played, the truth of the matter is he's actually been – one of the more, I guess, if you look across in terms of receiving yardage and catches and targets and, and yards per catch, et cetera, et cetera, in almost every one of the key receiving categories by tight ends during his very short career, he has been like top eight in every single one of them. So I know it's deceiving in that he's missed so many games, and the Giants obviously would love for him to be on the field a whole lot more. But at the same time, if you compare him to other tight ends around the league, the truth is his numbers stack up pretty well. Yeah, because you basically are taking those numbers, and also if you spread them out across a 16-game slate, you're right, he's up there. There's no doubt about it. But the bottom line is, can you get a 16-game slate out of him? The other thing that I think right. is also important to note, and I agree with you, the way tight ends are utilized across the league, specifically in the NFC, they're pseudo-wide receivers in some offenses. So if you're not a tight end that gets a lot of targets and makes those flashy plays, it's going to be difficult to make the Pro Bowl. And Tampa Bay, for example, a team I did not mention, they just added Rob Gronkowski, they have Cameron Braid, and they have O.J. Howard. It's going to be very interesting to see how those three tight ends are utilized within Tampa Bay's offense, a team we actually previewed on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So that, on top of Kittle, on top of Ertz, some of these young guys that are now coming into the league, it's not easy to make the Pro Bowl just because of the nature of that position across the sure. league and also I think the level of competition that Evan Ingram is going to be facing at his position, specifically within the NFC. Well, let me just give you a couple of those stats that I was talking about a second ago. 153 catches since he came into the league in 2017. That ranks seventh among tight ends in the NFL over that duration. His yardage since that time, 1,766 yards. That also ranks him seventh among tight ends since he came into the league. Those, those are two pretty significant numbers. His 12 touchdown catches ties him for 11th amongst tight ends since he came into the league. Now, look, I'm going to tell you something. I think if you ask the average fan on the street, because of all the games that he's missed, if he would have ranked that high on those lists amongst tight ends, most fans probably would have said false. They probably think he would have been lower. But his production has actually been pretty darn good. Yeah, especially within those small sample sizes. For example, last year he only played eight games, so he missed half the season. But despite that, 
as you read some of his numbers, his yardage per catch was over 10 yards. He found a way to get three touchdowns, including that long 75-yard catch and run against Tampa Bay to start the second half of that game. He missed five games in 2018. He was at nearly 13 yards per catch. And then in 2017, he missed one game, and he was at 11 yards per catch. And the reason why I'm focusing on average yardage per catch, that shows you that his numbers have remained consistent in terms of his explosiveness yes. and what he does when you get the ball in his hands. That, to me, is perhaps a good indicator as opposed to receptions, which you know are going to be in line with the amount of games. Targets, I think, is important because you want to see that they're consistently involved. But the yardage per catch, that's the one number. If you want to point to an evaluation of Evan Ingram's play, which has remained steady since he entered the league in 2017, that has not fluctuated at all. Well, let, let me just by comparison give you a couple other numbers here. For example, yardage per game. Ingram is at 51.9 yards receiving per game. That is sixth amongst tight ends since he came into the league. There's nothing wrong with that number at all. And by the way, here, here's the other funny part, too. You talk about some of the other guys. He is in front of. Okay, he's in the ballpark, and again, we're talking about one or two ranking spots difference depending upon the category. But if you were to categorize tight ends, obviously there's Kelsey, there's Ertz, there's Kittle. Those guys are just, they're on a separate plateau. But if you were to cluster where Ingram's numbers are, all right, he's right in there with Jimmy Graham, Jack Doyle, Kyle Rudolph, uh, Eric Ebron. Uh, he's ahead of Jason Witten by, by quite a bit in a number of different categories, as Witten is now uh, in the latter stages of his career and obviously had one year where he was out of the league. So a lot of people are ahead of Witten at this point. But, I mean, you just look at it and you say, well, you know, wait a minute now. Evan Ingram has actually done deceivingly much better than most people probably think. And I think that those numbers get overshadowed because of the injuries. But in fairness regardless of how attractive his numbers may look when you do a real detailed analysis, as you just did, if you want to look at what it takes to be a Pro Bowl tight end in this league, Kittle has had back-to-back -back years in which he's had 1,000 yards and five touchdowns. And oh, by the way, in 18, he had nearly 1,400 receiving yards. So Kittle's putting up receiver type of numbers. And Evan Ingram, during the course of his career, he has yet to come close to 1,000. 722 right. was his high, was in 2017. Okay, so there is still some distance there between George Kittle and Evan Ingram. Now, if you look at Zach Ertz as a means of comparison, you know, Zach Ertz is the type of player where he had a 100 reception season, which also was something that the only other player that you would bring into that conversation, Paul, was Jason Witten in the prime of his career. I'm referring to 2018, Ertz broke the record where he had 116 receptions in a single season. He also has had an 1,100 receiving season, and he just fell short of 1,000 this past year. He had 916. But prior to that, he put three straight seasons together where he had at least 816 yards. So Evan, while the yardage per catch is in the same ballpark of those two guys— we're talking about receiver video game-esque numbers that Kittle sure. and Ertz have put up. Sure, and that's a lot because of their offenses and what they do with their guys. But consider this one other item. For the numbers that I gave you before where Ingram ranks in the top eight of NFL tight ends since 2017, his 34 games played is tied for 47th 
amongst NFL tight ends. Consider that. He's top eight in several key statistical categories after ranking tied for 47th in games played. You know how hard it is to do that? Especially when you've missed all those games. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. That's so, why anyway. the average stats help Evans' cause out is what I'm saying. Because no in that sample size, which is relatively small, the productivity has been there. The problem is the volume hasn't been there. See, and that's that, essentially what held him back. And this entire argument, or not an argument, but this entire dissertation that we've made on Evan Ingram is exactly why it was laughable when people were suggesting last season and even during this past offseason that they should trade him. I mean, A... How guy coming off of foot surgery is not going to get you a hell of beans on the open market if you try to deal him. That's number one. And number two, his value to the Giants far outweighs his value to anybody else when you consider the status of his injury. I mean, the Giants, uh, they would be foolish not to look at him and say, hey, you know what? When he's been on the field, he's been really productive. And oh, by the way, he's not a problem. Okay, he doesn't cause any locker room issues. Not at all. He's a really good guy and a good teammate, and he does work his butt off, and he's do- he does everything right in the locker room and away from the field that you could want. So that's a guy who you're going to give him an extra cat's life, if you will, to see if he can produce. And consequently, although I may have thought that they were not going to pick up his option going into next year and figured, okay, let him have a prove-it season in 2020 and play 16 games, they decided that they were going to pick up that option because they clearly see the value in his playing time. And that was that fifth-year option because he was a first-round pick in 2017. So that's also another reason, by the way, that you have to take into consideration when you monitor him trade value-wise. It's not as if he has a lot of years left on the contract and there's the injury concerns. Normally, when you get good value in a trade, it's because, A, the player has a few years left on his contract, so you know you don't have to worry about giving that player an extension or a new deal, and, B, there's very few injury concerns. Those are the players that normally yield the best return. And there's intrigue, of course, with seeing perhaps Evan Ingram and Caden Smith on the field together after Caden Smith had a real nice second half of the year. 973-667-1960. That is our new telephone number. 973-667-1960. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. That's one of a few ways for you to interact with us here on the program. You could also turn to Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants, W-F-A-N. And you could also continue to submit your questions online, Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. The other newsworthy item respectable to the Giants is Gil Brandt, who was a longtime executive with the Dallas Cowboys. He wrote a recent article for NFL.com, and he put together 12 players who he thought teams should absolutely never consider parting ways, and a Giant made the list. George Kittle, coincidentally, was on this list who we were just talking about with the Niners, and he had one Giant, and the one player, which I don't think is a stunning development, was Saquon Barkley, and Saquon Barkley, I also think, has a strong case right now based on, Paul, what Carolina did with Christian McCaffrey, and I'm not bringing this up to talk about finances. I'm talking about there's always this debate in today's NFL circles about the value of a running back, but as I've said multiple times, Christian McCaffrey is not 
just a running back. He's an offensive weapon. Saquon Barkley is an offensive weapon. So the way teams view players like McCaffrey and Barkley are very differently than how players are going to view a Melvin Gordon, for example. And if you recall, he held out and then ultimately signed with the Denver Broncos this offseason. Or another running back that may be a one or a two down back and not necessarily an every down guy or somebody that is just as integral to the passing game as he is in terms of the ground attack. No, you're absolutely right, Lance. And I think that's going to be the interesting part about this because we've often talked about how critical that uh, uh, Barkley is to the Giants' passing game. Well, you know, the bottom line is he's going to take a bunch of hits because he's going to touch the ball over thirteen time, uh, 300 times a season, whether or not it's carrying the ball or then catching the ball and getting plastered by somebody in the secondary or the linebacking core. It's going to happen. So what you have to do is you say to yourself, okay, listen, he has an incredibly difficult training regimen, which is one of the things that Gil Brandt points to. He says that Barkley's commitment to training and strengthening his lower body will serve as the foundation for what should be a long NFL career. Well, if that's the case, then physically he's going to be up to that pounding and he's going to wind up being Emmett Smith-like, so to speak, Curtis Martin-like, LaDainian Tomlinson-like, where these guys are at the top of their game for a decade, and he will become one of the all-time great running backs and get that gold jacket that Dave Gettleman always projected for him as he lands himself into the Hall of Fame. Now, as long as he doesn't turn into TD with the Broncos and get hurt and have a shortened career, that's going to be great news for the Giants. Because, by the way, I don't think that Davis belongs in the Hall of Fame. I think his career was far too short. Might as well put Jamal Lewis in there, too, because he had 2,000 yards rushing for the Ravens one year. I mean, whoop de darn do You know, you got to do it. you got to do it for a decade at a very high level to truly be a legend and an all-time great. And clearly, Brandt believes that Barkley's training regimen gives him a chance to be that. We certainly know that the way the Giants are constructed – He's going to get every opportunity to put up those kinds of numbers and to prove that Gil Brand is right. Well, durability is the big key when it comes to the running back position. And it's not just Saquon. It's pretty much everybody that plays that position. That's a big reason why I think the outlook of that position has changed also with a lot of offenses turning to three wide receiver sets, the tight ends that we were talking about earlier. If you want to invest in a running back or you want to lean on a running back, you want to make sure that that running back provides different dimensions to your offense. And once again, Saquon certainly checks all the boxes, but some of these other teams that are brought up constantly, and let's use the two teams that were in the Super Bowl as an example, Paul. Kansas City and San Francisco both had running backs by committees where they utilized multiple guys. They didn't lean on one. You can have success in today's NFL with that approach. I don't think that's a bad approach at all. I think both of those teams prove that. Hell, San Francisco had three guys who each had at least 100 carries, and that's a way to preserve the health of that positional group. So this way you're not leaning on one guy. You're not even entertaining the idea of giving one guy in particular 300 carries. And I think we're going to see more and more of that in the league as opposed to relying on the one guy who gets 25 carries and we invest a lot of money in him unless he has the skill set of McCaffrey and Barkley. And you know you're not taking him off the field or you know he's more than capable of giving you 500 receiving yards in addition to the 1,000 that he could give you on the ground. That's going to be the only exception to the rule. But I think we're going to see more and more running backs by committees across the league. 
You know what's interesting? I Again, maybe a tad before your time, Lance, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but when Franco Harris was approaching uh, Jim Brown's all-time uh, rushing record, there was a lot of talk, and Jim Brown used to really get on Franco Harris because he said, you know, you didn't take guys on for that extra yard. You were real quick when you got to the sideline to go out of bounds. And and instead of fighting for those extra yards, uh, you were kind of concerned with preserving your body. Franco caught a lot of grief in that. In fact, if you remember, him and Jim Brown had a match race down in Atlantic City, and Jim Brown pulled up lame during the race, and so the race really never came off. But there was a lot of a lot of talk in those days, uh, and that's really where it all started, to be perfectly honest with you, where they started to talk about how are these running backs who are going to get a lot of touches last in the league? Durability all of a sudden started to become something of a conversation piece. And Franco, during the course of his career, and he was in the league, what, 13 years? Five different times, including four straight years in his prime with the Steelers, he touched the ball more than 300 times in a season. And in fact, in his last season in Pittsburgh at age 33, okay, he had 313 total touches from scrimmage at age 33 and ran for 1,000 yards. So, you know, maybe maybe Franco had it right that there are times when you need to be smart, and much like we've talked about how Eli Manning understood how to be Gumby in the pocket and how to take the hits and how to fold properly so that you could last and be healthy and be available to your team on a week-in and week-out basis. Maybe Franco Harris was the Eli Manning, so to speak, of the running backs. And and maybe that's one of the things that Barkley is, is going to be wise to learn if he wants to approach the kind of career numbers that Emmitt Smith put up during his career. Lance Meadow, Paul DeTito with you here on Giants.com's Big Blue Kickoff Live. So glad you could tune in as we are also covering a variety of different NFL topics in addition to what is going on with the New York Giants and related to the NFC East. They are expecting, according to multiple reports, for Dak Prescott, Paul, to sign his franchise tag tender today, which would mean that he would be locked into that, assuming the Cowboys and him do not work out a long-term deal. July 15th is the deadline for players given the tag to work out long-term contracts. And the reason I bring that up is, well, the Cowboys are going to be a team that the Giants are going to face two times this season right in the division. Not necessarily a stunning development. I think most people expect Dak is going to play for the Cowboys and wasn't going to hold out. But it's more of a timing issue now. Normally, as we've seen in the past, and you could say this relates to Giants players, Long-term deals tend to get done once the deadline is knocking on the door. And I Mm -hmm. would not be surprised if a few days before July 15th, something actually gets done. Because most teams do not want to have their quarterback on the books at the franchise tag number and then have to go through this whole process again the following season. Yeah, that's a nasty situation. Look, either way, Dallas is, is going to put themselves in a bit of a pickle here because they're going to wind up paying Prescott a tremendous amount of money. Now, if they can get a new long-term deal done, they'll be able to shave his cap number down and his percentage of the salary cap over the first couple of years of the deal. So they'll be able to buy themselves a little bit of time until the balloon payment comes in and then their quarterback salary basically suffocates their chances of being a Super Bowl team. That's what's going to happen. So it's either suffocate your chances now with a $31-plus million hit 
on your quarterback's uh, salary or suffocate your chances in maybe two or three years because you're able to spread it out. One way or the other, this is not going to bode well for the Cowboys. Well, the last time a quarterback actually played under the franchise tag in the NFL was Kirk Cousins, another quarterback, coincidentally, in the NFC East. That was 2017, of course, and then he wound up joining the Minnesota Vikings. So it's happened before, but the latest quarterback to do that wound up leaving town. Now, part of that was Washington and I think specifically Jay Gruden weren't necessarily sold on Kirk Cousins. I don't think that's the case in Dallas, and that's why I think this is going to play out very differently than how the Kirk Cousins situation played out. Yeah, I I think it probably will too, although I did see one comment on by one of the national media guys today. They said that they thought Prescott was going to sign the the uh, the offer, the the franchise tag today in part because it would handcuff the Cowboys from withdrawing the tag. Correct. It would lock and, them in. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, did they really have any inclination of doing that? Look, I, I've told you this when this first came up. If I were the Cowboys, I would. Quite frankly, I would. Because to overpay your quarterback is just a terrible, terrible idea in today's salary cap system. They should just with, withdraw it and say, fine. You know, we'll, we'll go with what we've got. Andy Dalton can play in this league, and he can play for a lot less money. In fact, uh, 10 times less money, to be perfectly frank with you. And they could probably be a very competitive team with him. But, you know, that's not going to be the case once Prescott gets out that pen. Well, and that's been the trend in today's NFL. Listen, if you're sold on your quarterback, you wind up paying them. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but listen, the Giants are eventually going to get in that position with Daniel Jones. Their goal is they hope he develops into the franchise quarterback. Paul, it's going to come where you're going to have to pay him too, just like you had to pay Eli Manning. I understand the economics were a little bit different when Eli was a rookie. The league has drastically changed since 04, but no one is immune to this, I guess is my point. If you draft your quarterback, The goal is that's your franchise guy, and then you're going to have to pay them according to the market. So what the Cowboys are going through right now, what the Redskins were facing a few years ago, the Giants are eventually going to get to the point, Paul, where they're going to have to have the same discussion and the same debate. So my response to you would be that what would you tell the Giants to do under those circumstances? Well, what you would hope is that you would have a quarterback who would understand the marketplace but also understand what his team needs to succeed. I mean, you look at Eli, and over the last uh, five years of his career, only once did his salary exceed 13% of the Giants' quarterback, uh, uh, Giants' uh, salary cap. Just once. Just once. Over the last five years of his career. Because Eli Manning was smart enough to understand when he signed his, his last new deal that it's not smart to suffocate your front office because it would, it would really hurt your chances of going somewhere. Now, of course, the Giants didn't have enough talent on the rest of the roster to really give them a chance to do a whole lot more. So that, that's immaterial. But you have to be uh, very much concerned and aware of the economic status of your team when you're the quarterback, you know you're going to be a very highly paid player, but you also have to understand for the betterment of the team, if you want to be a winner, if you really want to win it all, then you've got to be able to throw a few crumbs to the side and say, I'm not going to max this thing out because it's just too damn selfish. It's just it's hard for a player to always say that, Paul, simply when 
contracts are not guaranteed across the board. And in this league, if there's a player a, there's has enough an guaranteed money. In, Come on, man. There's enough of guaranteed money and signing bonuses and roster bonuses. Look, trust me, Dak Prescott is not going to be going to the nearest YMCA looking for his lunch money. Of course not. And I'm not saying that. All I'm saying is is that I don't fault a player for having the mindset, hey, I don't know how many years I'm playing in this league. When I do have an opportunity for a lucrative contract, I'm going to cash in. That's all I'm saying. And I think you got to see it through that lens, especially based on what has transpired with, unfortunately, certain players in the course of NFL history. Take, for example, Alex Smith, Paul. I mean, God forbid a quarterback has a devastating leg injury like that. You'd fault a guy for cashing in when he has his one opportunity? Look, it is what it is, man. It is what it is. You, you, you take a chance when you play this game and you get paid the kind of money you get paid. You also know that there is a risk that you could get hurt. There are things that there are involved in it. And if you want to be a champion, then you understand. Okay, then you understand some of the little shortcuts that you're going to have to endure. Now, as it stands now, if Prescott gets his 31.4 on the tag, he is 14.4% of the Cowboys' salary cap. History tells us that will not get you to a Super Bowl. Well, real quickly, before we wrap up shop here, and a great nugget with assistance from our very own John Schmelk, Eli's last contract, just to provide some perspective here, the deal is similar to recent extensions. This was when he signed it. This was a write-up when he signed it, okay? It was similar to recent extensions that Philip Rivers and Russell Wilson had signed at the time. Manning's $21 million average per year salary, slightly behind Wilson, which was 21.9. We're talking about a difference of 0.9 million and just ahead of Rivers at 20.8 million. Rodgers at that time was the highest paid signal caller, an average annual salary at 22. So Manning was not that far behind in terms of what the bar was for a QB contract at that point. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. It's all about the percentage of what you are in regards to your team's cap. Would you like me to quote the stats for you? 11.9% in 2019, 12.5% in 18, 11.7% in 17, 14.8 in 16. That was the high one. 10.1% in 15. The idea is to keep the number down under 13%, if at all possible. And let me tell you something. Tom Condon, who is probably the best of the high-powered agents in the National Football League, understands this. That's why when he does his deal with his guys, he tries to make sure that he takes into account what the team's numbers are, what the team's roster is, and how he's got to finagle his guy to get him the most, but also understand that he doesn't choke out the rest of the roster. That's well, why first Condon's all, the best agent in the league. Well, I'm not going to sit here and debate the value of an agent. And the point is, you're focusing on the percentage of the cap, which is important to note. First of all, I'd have to see Wilson and Rivers in the percentage of the cap that they took up as a means of comparison. But the larger point here is, because you were saying a quarterback should have the mindset of taking less, Eli took the caliber of money that he was owed at that point based on the quarterback market. That's my point. The value of his contract, Paul was equivalent to what quarterbacks were making at that time. But you have to put it into context of the percentage of what the team's cap is because if you don't and you put it in a bubble, then you can get away with the kind of statement that you're making. The problem is you can't get away with that. So then this conversation needs to be continued when you show me what Wilson and Rivers took up for their respective caps then. Be glad to do that the next time. And we will carry that on. you got to give me a means of comparison. You can't just give me an empty percentage and not tell me what other quarterbacks were taking up. That's all I'm saying. If we had another half hour, I would. 
and I'll continue it later on in the week. I'd be more Enjoy, than happy. Lance. We're not going Enjoy. anywhere. Hey, this is not ending anytime soon. We can Enjoy. carry on this conversation. No problem. Lance Meadow, Paul DeTito with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. That is going to do it for us. Appreciate everybody for tuning in. We're going to be back up and running live every single weekday. You can continue to ring us at 973-667-1960. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. We'll have a new episode of Big Blue Kickoff Live coming your way Tuesday at noon Eastern. For Paul DeTino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. We'll speak to you tomorrow. Have a good one.